produced by Podcast Architects. You're listening to the Lead On Podcast, where we discuss experiences in the armed forces while exploring lessons from military leaders. Welcome back to another edition of Lead On, Lessons from Military Leaders. Today I'm joined with Chris Cassidy. Chris is a retired Navy captain, and he's currently the president and CEO of the Medal of Honor Museum in uh, Arlington, Texas. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you, David. Well, hey, thanks for being here. Thank you for your service. Uh, 30 years in the Navy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and, and how you came about joining and the unique career path uh, that you took, which is not very common to go from an active duty SEAL to an astronaut. I mean, wow, is that, I, I'm excited for you to be able to share that and share your passion of aerospace and uh, and then how you got into the current position as the president and CEO of the Medal of Honor Museum. So to kick things off though, I'd just like to hear, since we are a leadership nonprofit and we want to explore leadership and your experience as a leadership, not every piece of leadership advice that we either given or receive has been the best. So what's maybe one of the worst pieces of leadership advice that someone ever gave you? I uh, that you know, it's, I had a fun time thinking about that, but uh, you have a Navy background. Of course, you've heard the, I, the, the saying, a bitchin' sailor is a happy sailor. And um, I actually, for the longest time, I thought that was, okay, That that's information that's helpful to me. But I actually think now with the, with the lens of uh, retrospect and a little bit of more maturity, I think that's probably the worst leadership advice I ever received. Um, members of a, of a unit, be it military, civilian, whatever, um, if they're dissatisfied about something, they'll let you know. And, and those things are things that leadership should be aware of and should, should make, should, um, either strive to correct, or if it's just a nature of the way we, the, the system that you're in, let people know that, Hey, that's, that's not something we can change. You know, we understand it's a sore point, but, um, but we hear you, we hear you loud and clear. So I don't buy into the concept of people are complaining. If they're not complaining, they're not happy. That to me was the worst advice I ever got as a young, young, uh, military person. Yeah. You know, and I, I agree. I think our, our, our time of service, if I remember you, you transitioned out around 2018, 2019 and uh, 21. Oh, 21, forgive me. And um, so I, you know, so those same 80s, 90s, 2000s, yeah, I certainly re remember that and eh, probably a product of that as well. Um, you know, I, I would just share, I uh, I realized a few years ago, let alone maybe two or three, I'm, I'm listening to myself through one of our leadership classes, getting upset and getting angry, eh, dare I say bitching about something. But I would always justify it as no, I'm being passionate, and and I really had to take a step back. Say no, that's not passion. That's just me complaining, and that's that's. It. But to your point, uh, recognizing that, and if somebody is uh, complaining to you about something, maybe maybe instead of ignoring them or justifying it, just like hey, maybe I need to listen to them and see what's going on. But uh, particularly important in the civilian community, for sure. Um, a, lot, a lot of things in that as we transition. I appreciate that. So, uh, 
let's let's just start from the beginning. What was it that attracted you to the Navy? And I remember you even had when you as you got into the SEALs, you didn't even know what the SEALs were, which is uh, amazing when we think about that today. People probably like, what do you mean you didn't know what SEALs are? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So I graduated high school in 1988, and um, I never thought about I. I was not a kid thinking about space flight. I was not a kid thinking about military life. I um, I loved sports and I enjoyed playing sports. So my connection to the military academies were the Army-Navy game. And my brother and dad and I, we'd watch that game every single year. And, and I remember always being impressed by the people marching on in the uniforms and the pomp and circumstance. And then they would show images of the school. And then when I... Uh, got late later in my high school years and, and actually was really starting to think about college and how do you pay for it and, and all of that is when I learned about the Naval Academy um, and it's free to go there. You just have to be in the Navy, which in my 17-year-old brain, I'm like, yeah, I'll be in the Navy. I don't care. Sure, that sounds fun. And I didn't understand at that point that there's lots of different things you can do fly airplanes, fly be on ships, submarines, SEAL teams, you know, a variety of other things. Um, but it didn't matter. I thought, okay, that, that, that'll be, that'll be fine. And, uh, so it was, that was the initial impetus to, to, to apply to the service academies. I, uh, to the, I knew I wanted to go to the Naval Academy just, I liked that area. I liked Annapolis. I, I liked, um, that particular I, I, I didn't have any deep thought about I wanted to be a Navy guy over an Army guy, not in high school anymore. It was more about where I wanted to be uh, physically in the country. Um, so that that was kind of it. And, and, and if you remember, back then, that was pre-internet, and uh, nobody really knew about the SEAL teams unless you were in a military town and you had, the, you know, if you lived in Norfolk or San Diego, you might know about SEALs, but for me... I had never even heard of, of that community uh, until I got to the Naval Academy Prep School, where it is in Newport, Rhode Island, and the, oh, the Officer Candidate School is right next door to Naval Academy Prep School, and there were a few en enlisted SEALs coming to OCS, and I saw them running around, and saw them in the chow hall, and um, learned a little bit about what they do. Yes, it's... It's kind of funny, too. You think 1988, that's when Top Gun hit the streets. And so everybody joining at that time wanted to be a pilot. They wanted right. to be the next Tom Cruise. And, and here you are just saying, I can go I can go play Navy for a little bit. And then you you find yourself joining the teams. Um, you know, as you went through that training, yeah, I, I've often wondered, is it is it buds that, that uh, you know, the, the, that everybody sees and you see all the History Channel stuff on, and the focus is on buds. Is it buds that makes a seal? Is it, it, or is it the buds that separates you? And it's really all that training after the fact. Where, where's really the emphasis? Where's the and and you? Know, where's the leadership that comes from that? Like what what leadership value did you learn? Because clearly you made it through buds, and then after buds. Yeah, um, leadership is is leadership and followership. And I, I've kind of gotten to appreciate that more in my NASA career, and and, uh, and I can talk about that a little bit later. But I didn't realize that at the time I was going through SEAL training is uh, uh, 
you know, you've got, you're a small, a leader of a small group, but as a, I was at Ensign and there were several Ensigns in my buds class. So by default, I was what's called a boat crew leader. And the class is divided up into groups of about six or seven or eight uh, people per boat crew. And the most senior member in the boat crew is a boat crew leader. So, so I was a leader of those folks, but then in part of the class, I was following the class leadership. Um, and so this shifting between leadership and followership is something that, that happens very rapidly in a, in a dynamic environment, like, like buds, like seal, seal training. And, um, but I think the true essence for me anyways, of, um, of seal training is to really understand that you can't get through it alone. That that's that the job of the, of the, uh, instructors, the professional staff there, it's to push each individual to their physical and mental limits. And sometimes those are matched and sometimes the physical happens before the mental or vice versa. Um, and then each individual person gets to those limits at a different time than the other person. So, uh, it's when you arrive to that moment where you're like, I got nothing left you realize that the person to the right or left of you is there with you just as hungry, just as tired, just as, as uh, miserable as you are, and you get through it together. And then you provide assistance knowingly or unknowingly to the, to somebody another time, just like they do it to you. And, um, and so that's, I think the basis of seal of buds. And then to your question, what makes you become a seal? There's a tremendous amount of specialized, really technical training that happens after seal train buds, you know, what everybody thinks of seal training as that's just kind of creates the mold of the clay that's needed to then go forth and add all of the finishing touches on. Uh, interesting. I appreciate that. You know, I, um, I know a guy, he was, so people probably are, so we have seals and then we also have SWIC the special warfare combat crew and you people, uh, those are those boats, those small fast boats that bring seals ashore at, in some of the missions. So a friend of mine, friend of mine, son went through SWIC and prior to going through, I was able to introduce him to somebody involved in that community. And this, this person had asked him, why do you want to do this? And this young man didn't have an answer. And, and he was told, you know, you need to have your why, because to your point, like you said, when you're hungry, tired, exhausted, beat up, drained, without that why, what will keep you going? Um, so did you have a why? I mean, having never really, never know anything about SEALs, but then whatever attracted you and, pers- you know, you, you went there and I'm sure whether it was during hell week or sometime before or after, even, even beyond that, what, what were you, why to keep you going? You know, that's a good question. For me, there's uh, a little bit of it is I just don't want to uh, quit, but that's very vague. And uh, I learned later, and, and, and again, this you gain knowledge through experience in life, right? And oftentimes when you're doing it, you don't realize, especially when you're 23 years old, you just kind of, I got to do 10 push-ups, Roger that. I got to do 10 push-ups. Um, but I think now I understand myself a little better and I have this inherent 
fear of letting people down who I love. And uh, I don't want to be the guy that we don't succeed because I didn't do my job, whether it's in training or in professional life or family or whatever. Um, and so my why for the longest time and most pretty much my whole life ha has been if we fail, it's not going to be because of, I didn't do my stuff. Um, and, uh, and then in, in the SEAL training class, you, you rely on each other. You're broke. Somebody's responsible for boats. Somebody's responsible for the life jackets. Somebody's responsible for whatever. You can fill in the blanks. And um, I just always wanted to do my best for the stuff I was responsible for. You know, that is, had, you know, when we first met, you talked about courage, and there's different forms of courage. Um, and I think what you you kind of gave a, you know, because that that same courage that you had, because you don't want to fail, you don't want to be that guy. Um, did that carry with you after the service and the civilian life? Um, the same as um, I know for me personally, um, I thought I was a certain person, both in uniform and out of uniform, and it wasn't until I transitioned out that I realized. That wasn't the case, that um, I did not display that same courage to my family as I did to my to my my family at home as I did to my family in uniforms. So, you know, what's your experience with that word courage? Even at Sailor of the Year boards, you know, define honor, courage, commitment. When people would define courage, they had a challenge defining that, that word. Yeah. You know, it's funny, in my current role as a, as a president of the Mental Water Museum, we are trying to come up with good definitions for those character traits, courage, honor, patriotism, sacrifice, so that we're all, as a staff, and uh, we're putting out consistent messaging. And it's actually pretty difficult to, to summarize words like that because they can mean so many things that uh, um, resonate with people differently. But the one part for me that, that I think about courage it's, is that it's not translatable to every aspect of one's life. Like um, somebody can perform a courageous act as a military person on the battlefield or, or whatever. Somebody can, uh, in a school, courageously stop a shooter. Um, but that same person might shy away from a difficult conversation or, 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 um, you know, tell, telling, telling a loved one that, that they have a problem with something they're doing. Those things require courage of a different kind. So it, it was eye opening for me to think about that, that the courage can be displayed in one aspect of our lives, but not another. And that's normal. And we're all normal people. And, um, uh, and we all have fear or fearless. You know, I don't think everyone, anyone is ever fearless, but we all have varying degrees of fear in our lives and, and it requires courage to deal with that. Part of the thing I'm often asked about space flight, like what did you, how were you, were you afraid when you climbed on to the rocket and they lit it on fire and off you went? And, um, uh, my response to that is I think fear comes from uncertainty. And so the more you can dial down the uncertainty, the more you can get a handle on fear. And, uh, and that's, and the, and you think about it, like 
when you experience something for the first time, you don't know what you're getting into and you can be nervous. But if you've seen it, if you trained for it, if you've done it in the simulator or if you've been in that situation on the soccer field, whatever, you have less anxiety or less fear because you've experienced a similar situation. Yeah. Um, so true. I, I guess I have fear every time I get in the car just because I, I don't have control over all those other cars around me. Right. Uh, um, you know, but before we jump into the, uh, the NASA, I, I have one, one more follow-up to, to courage. Um, so in your capacity, you, you, you've met, I'm sure plenty of Medal of Honor recipients. Um, and you've read, um, you know, so many other, um, citations or awards from those that are no longer with us. Um, at least from the ones, the people that you've met, is there a, a common courage, a common trait maybe that, and I don't know, but that, that maybe you've, you've seen that, well, that, that explains why this individual did what, what they did. No, I, I don't know if there's a common one, but one of the common answers I hear when talking to the various um, Living Medal of Honor recipients, because that's a, that's a great sample set to, to explore this concept of courage with, um, is if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And uh, some of them use those exact words. Others have used similar wording, but hey, the unit was pinned down by suppressive enemy fire, somebody had to take an action and I was in a spot that was the most advantageous to move or, um, you know, those, those soldiers on that were dying on the hill in Vietnam and we had to get a helicopter in there and I was in the helicopter. So I flew right into the hot landing zone. So that if not me, then who kind of thing I think is very common kind of mindset with the recipients of the Medal of Honor that I've, that I've met. I appreciate that. That's good. So how many years did you do, uh, NSEALs before you transitioned to NASA and, and what was the motivation? Uh, I mean, that, what that's, I mean, it's even harder to get to be an astronaut than it is to be a SEAL. Yeah. I had been in the Navy for 11 years when I got, uh, selected and transferred over one, one year about the first year after commissioning was, you know, buds and jump school and all of the training. So 10 years, one year of training, 10 years as a active qualified Navy SEAL. And, uh, and then in 2004, I was selected to be an astronaut and moved over to, to, um, to NASA. The, what motivated me to apply was, was really pretty simple. I met Bill Shepard, who was the first Navy SEAL to become an astronaut. And, um, and he had gone to graduate school at MIT and I was going to graduate school at MIT and, and the, the light bulb dawned for me like, oh, well, my background is lining up to be similar to his. And they thought that he was a competitive applicant for NASA. So maybe I could be as well. Um, and why not try? So I talked to Shep, Bill Shepard, and he told me. He introduced me to the astronaut selection um, office and the people there and told me how the process works and when they apply, when they take applications and all of the mechanics of it. And, um, and 
then I applied and, and got, because I actually applied one time prior in the, in, we select astronauts about every four years. And I select, I applied in the class of 2000 and did not get an interview, but I hadn't completed graduate school. I hadn't had 9-11 hadn't happened yet. So I didn't have experience overseas. And four years later, I was just a much more well-rounded applicant and, and was selected. That's great that you didn't get discouraged the first time and, and you stuck stuck with it and uh, learned from it. So how many uh, how many space flights, how many missions did you? Uh, so I, I worked at NASA for just about 18 years, like 17 and a half years. Uh, the whole time I was there, I was an active duty Navy person. My You can think of it as my, my PCS duty station was the Johnson Space Center, but my time towards require, retirement and fit reps and every six month PRT, all that stuff was normal, like a regular Navy person. Uh, so in that time frame, I flew three space flights. My, the first of which was on a space shuttle, space shuttle Endeavor in uh, STS-127 in the summer of 2009. And then, um, and then my, my second mission was on a Russian Soyuz in 2013. And my third and final mission was also on a Russian Soyuz in 2020, all three missions, I went to the space station, the shuttle, shuttle missions were short duration. We stayed for two weeks and they came home, delivered a bunch of cargo and helped assemble this, complete the assembly of the space station. And then my second and third mission were both six months long. So I lived on the station for, for a little over a year of my life. Wow. What, so, and you know, what's, Oh, what's that like? What, what, I mean, we, we've all seen photos or pictures, videos. Um, is there anything you can, some experience or some, something you could tell us that, you know, yeah, that, that this is the reality or not, not this is the reality, but just something we may not, not necessarily common knowledge, nothing classified, obviously, but you know, what, what's kind of a unique thing about maybe, and maybe not even there, but what about, you know, when you come back from that deployment? Whether I could talk for hours about just this one um, question, I'm sure the, the uniqueness of uh, there's uniqueness of launching, there's a uniqueness of of floating, there's a uniqueness of living long term on uh, on the space station, you know, and you just, it just becomes your daily routine, and then and coming back and each in each and every one of those is a whole different answer, but it's so cool to float. It's so cool to to look out the window and see earth below you and, uh, and realize that it's, um, eight billion, there's 8 billion people down here and you're one of three or six people that are, that are off the planet and, and having this unique viewpoint of, of the spaceship that we call earth. And, um, but then you're up there and the, the space station is a big machine. It requires maintenance, just like the ships that you were on. Uh, and, every machine is either broken or it's going to break. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the interval between those, but, and the space station is the same thing. And so we're constantly doing maintenance. Uh, however, the primary mission of the space station is to conduct science, uh, and, and research that will help make life better on earth or, uh, improve our ability to explore this cosmos. And, uh, and so probably 60% of our time is devoted to that mission. 
20% of the time is maintaining the space station, either corrective or preventative maintenance. And the other balance of the 20% is maintaining ourselves, exercise, sleeping, eating, all that stuff. What'd you guys, um, what'd you do for entertainment with each other? Well, we have, we have movie library, we have music, we've got a, a few musical instruments. There's a, a keyboard, a guitar, a harmonica, if you were so inclined. I'm not a musical guy, so those things never came out of the bag while I was up there. But, um, but others, that's a big part of it. But I think for me, it was most enjoyable because cool experiences are cool experiences. Cool experiences with people that you love and care for are just amazing things. And, um, and I felt that way about my crew members. And, uh, and so I, I just really liked hanging out, chatting with the crew members. We're all international crew. I've flown with members of, of the Russian Space Agency, European Space Agency, um, Canadian Space Agency, Japanese Space Agency. So it's really special to be up there with a mix of people from different countries, all of whom that you know well, and then uh, laugh together, worry together, work hard together. Um, that part was was a lot of fun. Now that makes it sound like it's all a bunch of work. It's not. If you if you try to go somewhere on a six month, I mean you've done six month deployments. If every single day was a full work day, you'd be completely fried. You've got to have some time off downtime, even if it's where if it's just a two shifts on a ship on a ship or something where you don't have any responsibility. Otherwise you're prone to make errors. And, and we take that very, very seriously on uh, your, your error rate. And whether you know you made a mistake cause you skipped the line of the procedure, but you didn't actually do anything, but you know, you missed it or, or that's a small example, or you actually throw the wrong switch cause you're super sleepy and tired and you're not paying attention. And we want to prevent all that. So, pay a lot of attention to work work uh, rest cycles. Thank you for listening today to the conversation with Chris Cassidy. I want to invite you to visit the Medal of Honor Museum online by going to www.mohmuseum.org where you can learn about the museum. And then after you're done, shoot on over to the Melissa Leadership Foundation's page at www.melissaleadershipfoundation.org where you can learn about it the Alyssa Leadership Foundation and our programs as well. Produced by Podcast Architects.